Hi everyone, just a quick thing before we get going with today's episode. The guys over at the Royal Grumble podcast are raising money for Sheffield Children's Hospital here in the UK, and you can donate online through their Just Giving page. If you donate, you can unlock huge bonus episodes from the guys, as well as other perks. Head on over to www.justgiving.com forward slash Royal Grumble to donate whatever you can. There isn't a set amount to donate, it's completely up to you, and you can also see all the information regarding the bonus content. All donations go directly to Sheffield Children's Hospital. It's a great cause, so give whatever you can. I'll link the page in the description of this episode, and also go follow the guys on Twitter using the handle at Royal Grumble Pod. Thank you. Five hours to dawn, and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of sticks. You know, you know, it's so fucking clean and righteous, man. You know said I, I, I got demons clawing at my ass. The streets I was selling dope, as bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking kill the cop! Fuck you, Governor. And what is your problem, man? I'm just fucking ass. I wish I could, man. I got potatoes to peel. Yeah, you should give me a phone number and an address. Word. Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah, thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring everything down to the level of a goat. Titties and humping. Sex offended. Shit all over a man. It's not normal. I am black. I am a Muslim and I am a man. And sometimes those things, they won't. It's about the whole horror judicial system. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Just wanted to take a minute at the start of the show here to say a massive thank you to everyone who has listened to the show since launching. As since the last episode was released, we passed the first anniversary of the podcast. And also on the day of recording, it is the 22nd anniversary since Series 1 Episode 1 was originally broadcast. So yeah, huge, massive thank you to each and every one of you who has listened so far, and here's to the second year of the show. So today we are going to be looking back at Series 2, Episode 7, Animal Farm, taking its title from George Orwell's 1945 novel. Written by, or at least credited, to Tom Fontana, and with a teleplay by Tom Fontana and Debbie Sargent. Debbie had worked as a co-producer on Oz through the show's first series, but this is her first and only writing credit for the show. Starting her career as an assistant camera operator on the documentary Before Stonewall in 1984, Debbie also worked as a camera assistant on Desperately Seeking Susan in 1985, Jimmy Buffett Live by the Bay in 1986, and in Eddie Murphy's 1987 special, Raw. She had previously worked with Tom Fontana on the TV movie Firehouse in 1996, and as far back as 1993 on Homicide Life on the Street, working as a post-production supervisor on seven episodes, and from 1995 to 1997 worked as a co-producer and an associate producer across a total of 68 episodes. The episode was directed by Mary Harron. Born January 12, 1953 in Bracebridge, Ontario, Canada, Mary moved to England at the age of 13 and later attended St Anne's College at Oxford University, graduating with a degree in English. She's believed to have at one time dated Tony Blair, who at the time of this episode airing was the Prime Minister of the UK at some point in the 1970s, but I'm not entirely sure that's true. In the 1970s, Mary moved to New York City, where she worked as a journalist helping to launch Punk magazine, and was the first writer to interview the Sex Pistols for a US publication. Moving into TV in 1985, Mary worked as a researcher for the South Bank show in the UK, as well as on a BBC documentary on Andy Warhol following his death in 1987. 
Mary's early career continued to focus around the life of Warhol when in 1996 she wrote and directed her first feature film, I Shot Andy Warhol, based on the true story of Valerie Solanas who attempted to assassinate the artist in 1968. The film was generally well received and grossed approximately $1.9 million in the US on a limited release. In early 1998, Mary directed the 10th episode of the 6th series of Homicide Life on the Street, Sins of the Father, which also featured Oz alumni John Cedar, who we know as Dino Ortolani, and Granville Adams, who plays Zahira Reef. Holding an 8.3 on IMDb and originally broadcast on August 24th, 1998, a day in which the US Federal Court rejected the Census Bureau's plans to use statistical sampling for the 2000 Census, a decision that was later upheld in the US Supreme Court, and Storm Charlie dropped 12 inches of rain on southern Texas and northern Mexico, resulting in the deaths of 14 people and 60 people missing. Which leads into Augustus explaining chaos theory. It's called the butterfly effect. A butterfly starts flapping its wings in China, and over the course of time, that little movement of air becomes a hurricane in Texas. See, one day, you got a butterfly dancing on a flower, the next, you got pianos stuck in trees. And the little butterfly, he didn't know any better. He was just out looking for food, for love, for some kind of satisfaction. So we kick off with Augustus explaining the butterfly effect, sometimes referred to as being part of the chaos theory. And we open up on M-City with the lights coming on, and Beecher waking up from his drunken bender with the moonshine. Diane pops her head in and tells him, come on, up and at him. But Beecher says that he isn't feeling well, as Diane likens his pod and Beecher himself to smelling like a gin mill. She asks if he's been drinking, and of course Beecher denies it, but Diane notices the glass jar on the floor and takes Beecher to see McManus and Sister Pete. McManus takes a sniff of the jar and is taken aback by the smell. He asks Beecher where he got the moonshine, but a massively hungover Beecher says that he doesn't know as McManus continues to ask who brought it in, asking whether or not it was fairies or if it was brought in by Keller. Mamana says that if it was Keller, he'll leave him in the hole for another month, but Beecher quickly jumps in and says that it was he that brought in the booze. Mamanus keeps the questions coming, asking who it was that sold it to Beecher, but Beecher just says that it was some guy in Unit B. Mamanus presses for a name, but Beecher says that he doesn't know, so Mamanus suggests that maybe Beecher could do with some time in the hole, before Sister Pete puts a stop to the questioning and asks to speak to Beecher alone. Beecher recognises her disappointment in him, saying that he had been doing so well, but Sister Pete says that Beecher has been under a lot of pressure due to Genevieve's death and falling in love with Keller. Beecher shoots her a look and she has to remind him that he told her about his feelings for Keller. Whether that's an effect of the alcohol or not is open to debate, or it could just be that Beecher has had so much going on that he simply forgot. Pete says that Beecher misses Keller, and I've got to admit I did like Beecher's sulky face when she said that. She sends Beecher to the hospital for some aspirin and tells him to sleep it off, but says that if he ever drinks again, she's going to kick his ass, and I believe her when she says that. We've seen before that Sister Pete doesn't stand for any shit. We cut to the hospital where Schillinger is dropping off the mail and he sees Beecher laying in his bed. He tells him that he heard about Beecher's little bender and says that he's upset about Genevieve killing herself. He then asks if Beecher would feel any better knowing that it wasn't a suicide, but that Schillinger arranged to have her killed. Beecher says that Schillinger is lying, as Schillinger says, maybe he is... Maybe he isn't, and he's sporting the most amazing shit-eating grin I've ever seen. Beecher mentions about the suicide note, but Schillinger says that she would have written and done anything due to having a gun pointed at her head. He says that Beecher will never know for sure, and that the best part about the whole thing is that it's Beecher's fault either way. And they nearly fight, but Gloria is on the case to break it up from across the room. 
Now, as you'll recall, I did theorise about this very thing a couple of episodes back. As I'm essentially re-watching the show for the podcast, maybe I've subconsciously remembered this in a way that it came out as a theory, but I've got no memory of this scene ever happening. It is a good little scene though, and it illustrates this change in Schillinger from where he was at the start of Series 2, when he was basically afraid of Beecher, and how he could mess everything up for Schillinger's upcoming parole at the time. Since then though, with Schillinger having acquired some extra time on his sentence, and Beecher going through rehab for his addictions, Schillinger hasn't got a reason to fear him anymore, and he's back in the role of being the tormentor. You also see Chucky laying in his bed a couple of places down from Beecher, so he's still yet to be released back to M-City, but there's no sign of Shibetta anywhere. Cut to M-City, where Kashin is asking Ryan about Cyril coming to Oz, asking if Ryan has had the chance to see him yet, and if he knows what unit Cyril is in. Ryan tells him that he's sceptical about Kashin's sudden interest in him and his family, but Kashin says that two brothers being in the same prison is interesting, before he's cut off by Ryan asking if he's trying to convert them, before he then tells him to fuck off. The O'Reilly's of course not the first brothers to go to the same prison. The most famous brother inmates are probably John and Clarence Anglin, famous for robbing the Columbia Savings Bank building in Columbia, Alabama in 1958 using a toy gun. Both men received 15 to 20 year sentences and were incarcerated at Florida State Prison before moving around a couple of times, finally arriving at San Francisco's Alcatraz Federal Penitentiary in 1960. The brothers, along with fellow inmate Frank Morris, disappeared on June 11, 1962, following an escape from the prison by which the men dug out of their cells into the prison's service corridor, before heading to the prison roof, and then down a kitchen vent pipe, eventually leading to the water surrounding Alcatraz Island. All three men were pronounced missing presumed drowned following the escape, and have never been found, although there have been a number of claimed sightings over the years. The escape was detailed in J. Campbell Bruce's book Escape from Alcatraz in 1963, as well as the 1979 film of the same name starring Clint Eastwood. Other famous prison brothers include Eric and Lyle Melendez, both currently housed at Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility in San Diego County, California, and Jake and Elwood Blues, who served time in Joliet Correctional Center in Joliet, Illinois. So we cut to Cyril sat in his cell and he seems to be housed in Genpop, which it's mentioned a little later on is Unit B. He's playing with a bouncy ball, but drops it when Schillinger approaches him. Schillinger asks if he is Cyril O'Reilly, and says that he looks like Ryan, but all Cyril wants is his ball back. Schillinger surprisingly gives Cyril the ball back, seemingly as a way of gaining his trust, and then tells him that he knows Ryan from his time in M-City. Cyril asks what M-City is, and Schillinger says that he'll take him to see it, as well as Ryan, and he takes Cyril by the hand and leads him to a utility room. For the purposes of storytelling and drama, you have to overlook the fact that, despite this being a maximum security prison, this utility room is, first off, unlocked, and appears to be completely unguarded. Schellinger, along with two other men, tells Cyril that before he takes him to M-City, he has to do something for him first, and tells Cyril to take his clothes off. He starts to unbutton Cyril's shirt, saying that it's going to be okay, as we cut to Augustus narrating about a cat's ability to see in the dark, asking if we had that ability, would you really want to see what's going on? Obviously, we can tell what's happening in this scene. Schillinger rapes Cyril. There's a multitude of reasons as to why this won't have been shown, partly due to Cyril's mental capacity as a character, but I don't think the episode would have needed it anyway. Unlike the rape scene between Adebisi and Shibeta, you get everything that you need to get from how this scene was shot, so that's some good direction and writing there. In the cafeteria, Ryan finds Cyril, who is sat with Schillinger and other members of the Brotherhood. Cyril seems really happy to see Ryan, and gets up to give him a big hug. 
A guard tells them to knock it off, Ryan just tells him to do one because they're brothers. They do get broken up though, with the guard saying that Cyril looks more like Ryan's sister. Ryan asks which unit they put Cyril in, but he isn't sure and says that they put him with him, and motions over towards Schillinger, who again is grinning away like a Cheshire cat. And he tells Ryan not to worry because he gave Cyril the royal welcome. Ryan looks horrified, he knows exactly what Schillinger means by that, and he gets into Schillinger's face saying that he'd better not touch Cyril. He tells Cyril to stay away from Schillinger, but Cyril says that he thinks he did a bad thing, which makes Ryan look even more horrified. He says that he's going to get Cyril transferred out of Unit B, but he doesn't know how long that's going to take, so he quickly formulates a plan to get Cyril into the hull out of Schillinger's clutches, and he asks Cyril to hit him. Cyril isn't going for it though, so Ryan has to provoke him, which he does by giving Cyril a couple of shoves. Cyril eventually retaliates with a stiff-looking right hand, which will form the basis of a storyline in Series 3, which leaves Ryan with a bloody nose. Cyril is escorted away screaming for Ryan as he goes, which was quite upsetting. Ryan stares at Schillinger, giving him the cutthroat gesture, mouthing, you're dead. The scene closes with Schillinger looking annoyed that his new prag has been taken away from him. Another great little scene here, and it shows a more loving, genuine, more human side to Ryan than what we've seen before. And that's pretty much the theme for the episode for a number of characters. Since the start of the show, Ryan has always tried to remain one step ahead of whoever he's aligned with and is just looking out for himself. However, here we see for the first time that other than himself, he truly cares about his brother, even though it's Ryan's fault for Cyril ending up in Oz. Ryan goes to see McManus about getting Cyril transferred out of Genpop. McManus, I want you to transfer my brother to M City. Your brother? The one who killed Gloria Nathan's husband? The one who we just put in ad sec for punching you? <laughs> Give me a break. You leave Cyril where he is, and Schillinger will suck his bones dry. Well, Schillinger's gonna suck anyway, so why should your brother be the one that's spared? He's slow. Cyril had an accident last year, and he got slow. He doesn't understand what's going on here. He can't protect himself. Sad, but too bad. I'll do anything you ask me to. Anything. A deal? Yes. Okay. I want you to ride on somebody. <gasps> Who? Yourself. I want you to confess you told Cyril to murder Preston Nathan. I didn't. Oh, you did. If I say yes, I'm looking at another decade added on to my sentence. Probably. No way. Well, then your brother stays in Vern Schillinger's ever-loving arms. Bannis, don't you fucking play with hey, me! Now. You got something to say? Say it. I'm a busy man. <laughs> Fuck you, McManus, you fucking cocksucker. So McManus not prepared to do Ryan a favour, and while he is justified in what he's saying, perhaps he's making a rod for his own back with what might occur between Ryan and Schillinger going forward. We also get the mention about Cyril having some kind of accident which led to his current mental condition. I'm fairly certain that we do get the full backstory to that at some point, but I honestly can't recall when. Also interesting to note here, and something that has a great payoff in the final series, there are very few characters on the show that pronounce Schillinger's name correctly. They haven't started to go with it yet, but it does become more of a running joke as the show goes on. Cut to the M-City common room where Augustus, Kenny and Kashin are watching TV. And there is a news report about a new law stating that sex offenders released from prison must register with local police. More commonly known as Megan's Law in the US, 
The law was first enacted as a subsection of the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act of 1994, and eventually signed into law by President Clinton on May 17, 1996. Individual states have their own versions of the law, in which they decide what information will be made available and how that information is distributed to the community. Kashin takes exceptions to the report, calling it Orwellian, hinting at the concept of Orwell's other famous novel, 1984. Kenny asks who Orwell is, and seeing as he's just learnt to read, I reckon it's safe to say that he isn't familiar with Orwell's work. Kashin says that if a man has paid his debt to society by completing his jail term, then he deserves a chance at a normal life when he's released. Kenny, however, says that perverts aren't normal, and that he would want to know if one moved in next door to him. Kashin raises a very good point about Kenny being a convicted murderer, and that it could be the murderers who have to register next. Augustus, however, takes things to the extreme and says that people who talk in movie theatres should register. And honestly, I'm kind of with him on that one. He and Kenny then start talking about how someone with huge tits should register and how that would be amazing, to which Kashin loses his rag saying that they're like goats and have to bring everything down a level. He leaves and Augustus and Kenny agree that Kashin must be a sex offender. The delivery of that line from both men was fantastic. Yeah, they should give you a phone number and an address. Word. Bet you wouldn't mind that. Yeah, thanks for the stimulating conversation, guys. You guys like goats. You know, you got to bring everything down to the level of a goat. Titties and humping. Sex offender. It also gives us a little bit more about Kashin, as he never has a crime flashback. The only thing we've really known about him was that he was a high school teacher. So put those two things together and your imagination can do the rest to how he landed in Oz. Staying with the theme of perverts and abusers, we meet Richard Sippel, who is reading his Bible underneath a crucifix on the wall. He's taken for a meeting with Sister Pete where he admits that he is a pervert, and he does use those words, and also mentions about how early on during his vocation with God, he felt a trembling. Sister Pete is staring daggers through him, you can tell that Sippel absolutely disgusts her, but she remains professional and perhaps feels a duty to help Sippel due to him being a member of the church. Sipple was convicted March 10th, 1988 for sexual abuse in the second degree and sentenced to 15 years, up for parole in 10, putting him level with the real-world timeline. Richard Sipple is played by David Lansbury. Born February 25th, 1961 in New York City, David's first acting roles on TV came in 1988 for appearances in the play on One for the BBC, The Equaliser on CBS, and also appeared in Gorillas in the Mist, playing the part of Larry. From 1991 to 1993, David appeared in a handful of episodes for CBS mainstay Murder, She Wrote, starring his aunt Angela Lansbury. Throughout the mid-90s, David appeared in the TV movies Empty Cradle, Parallel Lives and Truman, as well as a guest spot on Sybil in 1995, Swift Justice in 1996, and Promised Land in 1997 before appearing here on Oz. Sippel describes the crime to Sister P, and he does seem to show a certain degree of remorse for his crime, although he never outright says that he regrets it. He does, however, say that he wants to be saved, to do good, and for Jesus to save him. Pete says that Jesus has already forgiven him, but Sippel needs to forgive himself, and that he has served his sentence. She says that tomorrow Sippel will be out in the world, so he's already had his parole granted, and that he'll be able to start a new life but the scene closes with Sipple asking what kind of life that's going to be. Pete meets up with Ray and Leo later on to discuss Sipple's release, and mentions that she called the diocese to see if anything was available for Sipple, but was laughed at for doing so. Leo doesn't seem surprised, stating that the church settled a half a million dollar lawsuit to Sipple's victim, and Pete then asks Ray if he can call the cardinal and ask for some help. And Ray, let's just say he isn't keen on the idea. 
He says that he has a stormy relationship with the Cardinal at the best of times, and he can't be bothering him asking for favours. Pete senses that there's more to it, and Ray eventually admits that he is disgusted by Sippel. Pete tries to tell Ray that Sippel is repentant and deserves absolution, but Ray says that Sippel robbed a boy of his innocence and calls him a child molester and a threat. Pete asks what Ray means by threat, does he mean to society, the priesthood, or to Ray himself? I mentioned this a couple of episodes back about theorising that Ray may have suffered some abuse in his life, and I got the feeling from this scene and the way that he talks about his disgust for Sippel that that must be what is being alluded to. Ray reluctantly goes to meet with Sippel. Hello, Father Makata. You're still reading the breviary? Oh, yes. Every day. Just as I was taught to do in the seminary. But you're not a priest anymore. When I was ordained, I became a priest forever. Forever, just like you. But the church has stripped me of my powers. I'm a priest forever, but not allowed to be a priest. I'm a man forever, but not allowed to be a man. I am, yet I'm not, you see. Father, will you pray with me? I can't. I can't pray with you. But I will pray for you. Ray calls the Cardinal asking to give Sippel a second chance. While we can't hear the Cardinal's voice on the call, we can tell from Ray's expressions that it's clear that he has no intention of granting any favours. Sippel's release is covered on the evening news, much to the disgust of some of the other inmates, as Ray holds prayer in the cafeteria to close out at one. Channel 3 News has learned that Robert Sippel, a Catholic priest convicted of sexually abusing a boy in his care, will be released today from Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary. Sippel spent 10 years in jail for the molestation of a 14-year-old boy upstate. As state law requires, Sippel must register as a sex offender with police and is expected to reside in the area. Anxious residents have expressed their concern over Sippel's plan to live in their neighborhood. shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. Act 2 gets underway with Augustus asking Schillinger how much it would cost to mail himself out of Oz. First time we've ever seen these two interact and that's probably as good a question as they'll ever be to break the ice. Schillinger asks him what he means, and Augustus literally means how much it would cost to have Schillinger box him up in a crate, have him sent to his wife back home, and how much would that cost in shipping and handling. Schillinger asks if Augustus is being serious, and when he says that he is, Schillinger calls him nuts. Augustus asks if that's a no then, and Schillinger tells him yeah, it's a no, and manages to confuse himself a little bit before telling Augustus to get out of there before he tips him over. Augustus leaves telling Schillinger to calm down, and that he can't help it if Schillinger is ugly and stupid. Fantastic little back and forth between JK and Harold. It's a shame we've never seen them interact before as they seem to play off each other really well. And I really liked that line about tipping Augustus out of his chair. I know I shouldn't do, but it was kind of funny. 
In the kitchen, Adebisi has received another letter from Shirley, and one of his crew, Junior Pierce, sees him leave with the note. He asks Kenny what's up with Adebisi, and Kenny explains that Adebisi is in love with Shirley due to their note passing, and mentions that it's been going on for about a week, but they've never met each other. Junior Pierce is played by Lexington Alexander, credited on the show as Marley Big X Alexander, and this is his only credited acting role. Again, couldn't find a whole lot about him outside of discovering that he has been a keen archer since a young age, and also tried his hand at a stand-up comedy career before appearing on Oz. He is around until the start of the fourth series, but he is very much a background character. Ryan heads into the pantry where Adebisi is reading his note. Adebisi tells Ryan to go away because Ryan has diseases, which, much like Schillinger's tipping Augustus line, made me laugh much more than it really should have. Ryan tells him that he is cured and wants back into the kitchen, but Adebisi flats out tells him no, doesn't even take a second to think about it. Ryan asks, haven't I always been there for you? And Adebisi again tells him no. Ryan says that he's the only friend that Adebisi has, before Adebisi changes the conversation and asks Ryan to read Shirley's note because he's struggling with some of the words. He asks Ryan what the word brawny means, Ryan explaining that it means he has a lot of muscles. Adebisi takes a second, saying, Yeah, I'm brawny. Really like the delivery on that line. Ryan tries to take the note, but Adebisi doesn't want to give it up. He eventually does, and Ryan continues to read for him. He says that Shirley has written that it's her birthday tomorrow, and as it will be her last birthday on Earth, the only thing she wants to do is see Adebisi's brawny naked body and to suck his cock. Adebisi says that he wants to meet with Shirley, and Ryan offers to arrange it, so long as he's let back into the kitchen, of course. Adebisi tells him, if she sucks my cock, I'll suck yours. Ryan jokes that it's an appetising thought, but he'll pass and gets up to leave. But Adebisi asks him once again if he can arrange it, and Ryan says that he can. He goes to talk with Timmy Kirk in their pod and tells him that tomorrow, Adebisi is going to be doing Timmy's mopping duty. Timmy tells him, fuck that, because Shirley shows him her pussy every day, and Ryan tells him to go without it for once, and throws Timmy a porno mag. Cut to death row, where Shirley has been delivered another meal by a guard, and she says thank you, Dumpling. It must be a different guard from last episode, as he was sweetie. I'm betting that she's got different pet names for all the guards. She lifts the food tray and finds a cupcake with a lit candle in it for her birthday, and she seems genuinely happy with that. We then hear someone whistling happy birthday, as Adebisi makes his way around pushing the mop. He asks Shirley if she likes her cake and tells her happy birthday baby, and she asks if he is the Simon that she's been writing with. He drops his trousers and tells her quick before the guards come, but Shirley refuses in no uncertain terms, and there's a great music cue which totally sums up Adebisi's thought in that moment. In fact, I'm just going to play the clip, and also strong language warning with this one. Quick. Before the axe come. But... You're a nigger. Suck my dick now. Hey, get the fuck away from me. What the fuck you doing? Tony! Al! So Adebisi is led away with his lad still hanging out with his pants and shouting for his dick to be sucked as Shirley blows out her candle. Cut to Adebisi's pod and he is not taking Shirley's rejection well at all. He's pulled the mattress off his bed and he's sat there in his pants snorting some drugs and Junior gets Kenny to come and have a talk with him. He asks what's up, but Adebisi just tells him to go away before he then starts to retch in the toilet. We get a flashback of him hitting Chucky with a big tin, as Chucky is brought back to M-City and he shakes hands with some of the other Italians. 
Junior and Kenny shout down from the balcony asking how his head is, and it looks like a fight is coming, but Chucky of all people calms it down saying fuck those guys and to not worry about them, because he has the good news that Antonio Nappa is coming to us. And with that we see Antonio Nappa going through the booking-in process along with some other new inmates. In this scene as well, we also get Diane giving her little routine speech that we first heard right back at the start of the show. It's verbatim what Diane says when Beecher first comes in, and in a weird way, it was nice to hear that again. There is a feeling of business as usual and things just roll on at us, despite everything that has happened since the show started. The new inmates are given their sponsors, so Antonio Napper is paired with Chucky, Jazz Hoyt is paired up with Burns from the biker group, while a youngster known only as Vincent gets Adebisi as his sponsor. The rest of the inmates are all off to Gen Pop, and one of them seems to have a particular interest in Adebisi, as Augustus narrates about a goldfish only having a 30 second memory. This is a classic urban legend, and it's been shown that goldfish can in fact have a memory span lasting a number of weeks. Like with most animals, if you train a goldfish with a food reward any time it does a certain thing, it will remember that even with a gap in the training. If you're someone who keeps fish, or someone that has koi carp in a pond outside, you'll know that they tend to associate a person with food, so will tend to approach you. If their memories were so short, they wouldn't make this association, so sadly this narration is a bit of nonsense, but it's well written at least. We get Antonio Nappa's crime flashback, which shows him carrying out a mafia-style execution in a strip club. Augustus gives us his details and tells us that Nappa is in for murder in the second degree, with a sentence of 80 years, and is up for parole in 50. Antonio Nappa is played by veteran character actor Mark Margolis. Born November 26, 1939 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Jewish immigrants of Polish and Russian descent, Mark briefly attended Philadelphia's Temple University before moving to New York City to study acting at the Actors Studio, as well as with renowned acting teacher Stella Adler. Mark's first credited film role came in 1977, playing Mr. Morrison in the movie Short Eyes. However, he did have an uncredited role a year earlier, playing the part of Unhappy Man in 1976's The Opening of Misty Beethoven. Following a number of supporting roles, his first noted role came in 1983 when he played the part of Alberto the Shadow in Scarface. On TV, Mark's first appearance came in 1985, appearing in The Equalizer playing the part of Jimmy, a recurring role that he played for 16 episodes over the next four years. Alongside small roles in films such as Maintenance Man in Secret of My Success in 1987, Mark landed roles on Columbo and Star Trek The Next Generation in 1990, before appearing in the NBC soap opera Santa Barbara, playing the part of Helmut Dieter for 13 episodes. In 1994, he made a brief appearance in Ace Ventura Pet Detective, playing the part of Mr. Shikadance, the landlord, while on TV he appeared in New York Undercover on Fox and Guiding Light on CBS. In 1998, Mark made appearances in the film Side Streets, playing the part of a bartender, and Pi, the directorial debut of Darren Aronofsky, before appearing here on Oz. Napper meets with Leo and McManus and says that he's upset to hear about Shibeta being raped, and that he and Nino were paisans, meaning brothers, although not literally, or fellow countrymen, and he also mentions that he's Shibeta's godfather. Leo and McManus look at each other, but he quickly corrects himself saying that he is literally Shibeta's godfather at baptism. Leo tells him that he isn't going to tolerate revenge, and Napper tells him that he shouldn't, and that all he is asking is that they punish the men responsible. Mamana says they will when they find out who that man is, and Napa asks if they have any suspects. Mamana says they do have suspects, but no witnesses, and with Chucky being unconscious through the whole thing and Shibeta not willing to talk, they're kind of at a dead end. Napa asks if he can see Shibeta, 
but Leo tells him no as we close the scene. Cut to the hallway where Nappa is talking with secret mafia man Lenny Barano. He tells Nappa that he thinks Shibeta's mind has snapped and he is taken to talking to his father as if Nino is still alive. Nappa says that they can't kill Adebisi at the moment, so Lenny has obviously informed him of what happened. But Nappa says that he does want Adebisi to suffer, and that to do that they need to take away what is important to him. That being his heroin, and Lenny describes Adebisi as being a fiend. Nappa gets in a quick line about taking Adebisi out for being a user and a dealer. So he seems to be looking to take back control of the drug trade in Oz, which of course the Italians had back in series 1. There hasn't been a whole lot about how the drugs get into Oz in this series, but the Italians were involved with them, as you'll remember Shibeta trying to strike a partnership with Miguel. Nappa obviously doesn't want to form such partnerships, and is looking for complete control of the drugs. He tells Lenny to suggest to Leo about carrying out some random drug tests. And with that, Lenny and some guards head into M-City, selecting some inmates seemingly at random. And we get Augustus, Saeed, Ribido, who is actually off-camera, and Adebisi as the ones to be tested. I'm sure Saeed is absolutely thrilled about being picked for a random drug test. He won't complain about that at all, I'm sure. Sister Pete and Gloria hand out some sample pots to the men for their urine samples. Adebisi looks at Gloria and whips his cock out and starts to smack it around. I mentioned a few episodes back that Adewale would do this on random occasions, but I'm presuming that it was written into the script on this occasion. If the show was being made now in 2019 and he was to do this randomly, my god, what a monumental shitstorm that would be. We see the samples being marked and then cut to Lenny making his way to Adebisi's pod, where Adebisi has stood stroking Vincent's arm, no doubt what he's up to there. Adebisi is led away for a talk with Sister Pete. Simon. After the riot, you went into severe heroin withdrawal. I thought you'd kick the habit. I did. Oh, come on. These reports say that you're still using. Now, I want you to come to drug counseling. Rehab is bullshit. No offense. Fine. Then I'll have you tested for drug use every week, and if you keep using, I'll send you to the psych ward. Have you ever been to the psych ward here, Simon? Peter Chibetta's there, along with 20 other guys who've lost all sense of reality. Reality? Us? So tell me, what world are you living in? Better yet, which world are you trying to avoid? Because drugs are all about avoidance, Simon. About not being able to accept some secret in yourself. Sister, don't send me to that loony bin. I will come to your meetings. I will stop taking drugs. Cut to lunchtime where the elderly inmate from Genpop is staring at Adebisi. Adebisi asks what he's looking at before Ryan comes over and tells Adebisi that it was Nappa that arranged for the drug testing in order to slow Adebisi down. Adebisi says that it looks like he has some killing to do and grabs Junior, Kenny, and a massive knife and tells him that the plan is... We're gonna go out there and cut the throats. Again, no messing around from Adebisi, he's not one for planning things, he's a doer. Kenny tries his best to talk him out of it, saying there'll be a better time and that right now there are guards all over the place. But Adebisi says let them see, and starts to head out of the kitchen to kill Nappa. But he's blocked by the staring inmate, who tells him you disgrace us all when you act like a fool. Adebisi tries to push him out of the way, but he's told that they are African brothers. Adebisi says look at all this black skin around but the inmate means something different from simply being black. 
And when Adebisi tries to say that he isn't different, he says Yoruba, which stops Adebisi in his tracks. The inmate asks what have they turned you into, as Adebisi asks who he is, and is then asked to ask himself the same question. Officer Menio comes over to break up the commotion, with the inmate telling him that there is no problem, and Adebisi heads back into the kitchen. I have mentioned Yoruba before briefly when talking about Adewale's upbringing. It's an ethnic race that inhabits Western Africa, consisting of approximately 44 million people, the majority of which are located in Nigeria. But it does have a population in Benin, Ghana, Togo, and the Ivory Coast as well. The mention of it here obviously means something significant to Adebisi, as he does seem to be the only Nigerian in Oz other than this new inmate. We see Adebisi in the shower room looking in the mirror, and he thinks that he sees the man again in the reflection, and he quickly turns round. But it is in fact Vincent standing there, who Adebisi motions to get in the shower, and is then joined by Adebisi himself. We get a quick shot of the inmate throwing some sort of shells or little rocks on the floor, so maybe he's some sort of African priest or a shaman of some sort. We do find out his name next episode, but I will cover that when we get to it. Adebisi heads to his pod and runs into Ryan along the way. Ryan asks what was with the old man in the kitchen, but Adebisi dismisses it as him just being some crazy old fuck and says that he'll kill Napper another day, but right now he's planning on having a lie down. He asks Kenny for the CD player, which they keep in the ceiling by pushing one of the boards out, which seems strange because we've seen Adebisi with this CD player loads of times already and nobody has mentioned anything about it being contraband. It just seems odd that they would hide it. Obviously, if the boards can be pushed out so easily, why has nobody tried to escape that way? It's a massive design flaw. Kenny asks what are they going to do about Napa, but Adebisi just puts his headphones on and leaves the pod. Kenny says that Adebisi is slipping, and that if his balls end up in a cannoli, then don't say shit. Which is a great callback to when Jefferson Keane thought he was getting some cannolis, only to find Johnny Post's dick in a box. Adebisi doesn't hear this, though, as he seems to be in a world of his own once the headphones go on. He starts to hear some chanting as the lights go out, and he looks down to the floor below and sees the old man dressed in traditional African dress, and there are some others playing instruments and dancing with fire sticks. Adebisi screams in terror, but then the lights come back on and everything is back to normal as everyone is just staring at Adebisi. He pulls the headphones off and then starts to whack the CD player on the railing, much to Kenny's dismay. Napper asks Chucky about whether or not he believes in voodoo to close out Act 2. Do you believe in voodoo, Chucky, the power of magic? Well, I do. There's an old wives' tale in Sicily that a new bride waits until she menstruates, then she takes her blood and puts it into the first tomato sauce she makes for her husband. What for? If he eats her blood, she can control him forever. Somebody's got Adebisi under a spell. Too bad it's not us. So Act 3 starts off with Augustus narrating about National Geographic specials being popular in Oz, as they tend to show a lot of wild beasts attacking each other, and ask why they never show any of the animals getting along with one another. We cut to the mill room, where Schillinger is explaining the procedures to a large tattooed man, Jazz Hoyt, played by Evan Seinfeld, founding member of the metal band Biohazard. A lot of the time this gets credited as Evan's first acting role, however he did appear in a film in 1997 called Angry Dogs which I cannot find a copy of anywhere, I can only find still images, but it looks so fucking cheap, like made with a camcorder levels of cheap. If you've ever seen a notoriously bad film like Fatal Deviation or one of those Birdemic films, then you get the idea of what I mean. I'll talk more about Evan Seinfeld in a little bit, but I'm quite happy that he's shown up, I was a big Biohazard fan back in the day. 
Gotta say about Evan Seinfeld here too, he is looking very big here. Proper hamster cheeks on that first. So Schillinger explains that they read everybody's mail, as Leo has this rule that everything gets opened and examined, and if they find anything suspicious, then to pass it on to the supervising guard. Jazz asks if that's always the case, but Schillinger says they get checked regularly, so they have to pick their spots carefully, but in the meantime they know every inmate's business, and says that knowledge is power. That quote is often attributed to Sir Francis Bacon, the 16th century philosopher, although there's no known phrase of that in his writings. Jazz says that you can do some real damage with a letter opener as he swipes at an envelope. Great that that was the first thing that he thinks of, you get an idea about his character straight away. Cut to M-City where Ribido and Boos Malis are standing in the queue waiting to receive their mail. Boos Malis is wearing his train driver's hat again, which got a little laugh out of me. He tells Ribido to relax and that he is suffering from pre-bunny syndrome, saying that after you dig and dig and dig and just before you go through the hole like a rabbit, then you panic. Ribido asks him if PBS is a real condition, and Boos Malis is all, yeah, sure it is. I'm, I mean, I made the name up, but sure, it's real. Don't ask me why, but I did Google this, and I'm sure you'll all be shocked to discover that there is no condition known as pre-bunny syndrome. Schillinger and Jazz are taking their time handing out the mail because Jazz is looking over as Ribido sits down, and Kenny asks what's with the holdup. Jazz tells him to calm down as Schillinger just tosses a letter at Kenny, who catches it with split-second reflexes. It was fucking amazing. He'd be great playing at silly point or short leg in cricket. So Ribido is sat with both Malis and Augustus, and he says that he's received a letter from his mother. And both men look shocked to learn that Ribido's mother is still alive, Ribido saying that she's 90. We don't tend to find out characters' birthdays as such, but if you were to take George Mephurgen's real-world birthday and apply it to Ribido, in the timeline, that would make Ribido 65 years old, meaning that his mother would have been 25 when she gave birth to him, which doesn't sound improbable. I can see where Boos Malis is coming from, though, as I tend to imagine Ribido being older than 65. He explains that the letter says that his grandson has leukemia, and Boos Malis seems even more surprised that Ribido has a grandson. Ribido explains that his fiancée was pregnant at the time of his arrest, and Augustus jokes about imagining Ribido doing the nasty, but Ribido doesn't seem impressed at that. Again, great little comedy moments from the guys in the others that really add to the show. So we get a bit of Ribido's backstory expanded on here, that he has a 34-year-old son named Alex who himself has a child. Ribido tells him that he's never met either, which was quite sad. I must admit as well, I thought this happened much later on the show, but I think I might be confusing this with a different Ribido storyline, but obviously I will cover that when we get to it. So McManus Council of Inmates is in session, and Jazz mentions to everyone about Ribido's grandson having leukemia, which gets a reaction out of the inmates, and they actually seem pretty bummed about it. Jazz mentions that the kid's dying wish is to go to Disney World, and McManus asks how he knows all this, and Jazz mentions about working the mailroom and reading the mail, which you would think McManus would have known as he has a say in inmates' work placements, but hey-ho, let's carry on. Jazz says that the family needs $3,000 for the trip, and says that maybe the inmates should send them there, and mentions about his bike club previously raising $10,000 for Ronald McDonald House, which as you can probably guess by the name is linked to the McDonald's Corporation, and was founded by the company's chief accounting officer Gerald Newman in 1974. If you ever go in a McDonald's and you see those little charity slots you can put your loose change in, that's for Ronald McDonald House. Jazz says that they all make money working their various jobs, and rather than spend the wages on shit, maybe they can club together and do something worthwhile. What you get here is a stark contrast to what you would expect from the tough-looking Jazz Hoyt, especially with how he was playing with the letter opener before. 
Kenny asks, what do we care about Rebido's grandson? But McManus tells him to shut up and that if he doesn't care, then fine, but to help if he wants to. McManus says that whatever the inmates raise, the staff will match it. He doesn't even bother putting it to a vote. He stamped his approval on this one, and I was thinking, good on you, McManus. In the cafeteria, Augustus hands Rebido some cash that he, Beecher and Boos Mallers have collected. He says that it's not much, but Rebido is very thankful to them for what they've done, and again, it's a really nice moment between them. He says that with the money from them and with what he has in his bank account, he has an overall total of $72. Saeed comes over and presents him with $100 from the Muslims, Rebido again looking very grateful. We then get a montage of Rebido receiving wads of cash from Ryan, Kashin, El Cid and the Latinos, the gay inmates, Schillinger and the Italians. The cash that Napa hands over looks fucking huge, that could have easily been $3,000 right there. McManus talks with Rebido in his office, asking how much he's managed to raise, Rebido saying that he now has almost $2,000. McManus hands over an envelope saying that with the staff's contribution, it should be more than enough. Rebido says that he's going to wire the money to his mother first thing in the morning and wishes for it to be anonymous as he holds back tears. We close out Act 3 with Rebido in his pod crying as Boos Mallers pops his head out of the hole. He thinks about talking to Rebido but decides to continue digging instead which I really liked, as sometimes the best thing you can do is nothing at all. It was better for him to just leave Veribido and let him have that moment alone. Kenny is across the way plotting to steal the money, but Adebisi is telling him no, and that sometimes it's good to be human. And that line right there is fucking massive. The whole segment was really well done, but that line from Adebisi summed it up perfectly and showed that the inmates aren't just a bunch of animals. They might act like it sometimes, and although the gangs have no loyalty to one another, they are capable of being human from time to time. So how much have you raised? Almost $2,000. Then this should put you over the top. First thing tomorrow, I'll wire the money to my mother. I've told her it was coming and I told her I want this gift to be anonymous. I don't want my grandson to know where it came from. You're ashamed? I collected like three G's. And that money's gone tomorrow. You know what? I'm thinking. We go to Rebidow, we take the dough, and then so these other fucks don't get mad, we make Rebidow swear that he sent it. No. What do you mean, no? It's $3,000. I said no. And why? Because sometimes it's good to be human. Act 4 then, and we kick off with a shot of Jazz Hoyt's tattooed back. All of these tattoos are Evan Seinfeld's real tattoos, and you see on his back there the Biohazard logo and DFL, a reference to the track Down for Life. You can also see the star of David on his stomach. Evan Seinfeld is Jewish in real life, and this would give the implication that Jazz is Jewish as well. Which begs the question why Schillinger seems to be so pally-pally with him. I suppose Jazz did have a shirt on earlier, so Schillinger wouldn't have seen it. But Jazz does go shirtless a lot on the show, so Schillinger will have seen it at some point. So we get Jazz's crime flashback in which he starts a fight in a video rental shop, once again wearing his leather waistcoat and bandana outfit. 
That seems to be his default setting. He's not happy about waiting in line and punches the store clerk and pulls him over the counter, and he achieves top mount position and lays the smackdown on the poor sod using a VHS tape. From what I understand, this being an American video shop means that tape will have been larger than what I was used to in the UK, meaning that there's been more damage inflicted by Jazz here. He's convicted of aggravated assault in the first degree, sentenced to eight years, and is up for parole in four. So as I touched upon earlier, and I've been looking forward to this as I get to talk about some metal music, Jazz Hoyt is played by Evan Seinfeld. Born December 29th, 1967 in Brooklyn, New York, Evan at this time was most famous as the bass player and vocalist for the band Biohazard. Formed in 1987 with guitarist Billy Graziadet and Bobby Hemble, along with drummer Anthony Mia, the band are often acknowledged as being one of the first to combine hardcore punk and heavy metal, as well as including elements of hip-hop. The band faced accusations of displaying fascist and white supremacist views following the release of their first demo in 1988. The band, however, denied these claims and explained that it was a publicity stunt to win over fans of the band Carnivore, another Brooklyn-based band that had split the previous year. Evan has defended the lyrics on songs such as Master Race as being a metaphor intended to shock listeners and grab their attention, and has maintained that the band was not racist. Although never considering themselves a hardcore band, Biohazard shared the stage early in their career with New York bands such as Agnostic Front and Cro-Mags, as well as New Jersey's Mucky Pup, with whom Biohazard developed a long-standing friendship. Biohazard signed their first recording contract with Maze Records, and released their self-titled debut album in 1990. With a constant subject matter of Brooklyn, violent gang wars and drugs, the album shifted around 40,000 copies, and was considered to have performed poorly. The band signed a new deal with Roadrunner Records in 1992, releasing their second album, Urban Discipline. Gaining worldwide attention, and with the video to their single Punishment becoming the most played video in the history of MTV's Headbangers Ball, the album sold over a million copies, and the band opened for acts such as House of Pain, Caius, and Sick of It All, as well as combining with the band Onyx to contribute a song to the soundtrack to the film Judgment Night in 1993. Despite Urban Discipline's success, the band would leave Roadrunner and sign with Warner Brothers Records to release their third album, State of the World Address, in 1994. The album again sold over a million copies, and led to an appearance at the Monsters of Rock Festival in the UK, now known as the Download Festival, and the band logo was named Logo of the Year by Rolling Stone magazine. In 1995, Bobby Hemble left the band, meaning that Biohazard's fourth album, Mataleo, was recorded as a three-piece. Through 1996 and 97, the band continued to tour extensively, and also appeared on the bill of the inaugural Ozfest, alongside Neurosis, Fear Factory, Sepultura, Danzig, Slayer and Ozzy Osbourne. And if you're not a metal fan, let me tell you, that is a hell of a lineup. While on tour for their Mataleo album, the band recorded their first live album, No Hold Bad, live in Europe, which was released in 1997 through Roadrunner Records. Random placement of Jazz's flashback here too, as it doesn't lead into anything else involving him. Instead, we see Augustus asking Miguel about whether or not he's ever seen an opportunity to escape when he's working the hospital ward. Much like Schillinger earlier, Miguel can't believe that Augustus is asking about escaping, but he does say that the ward is a dead end, because if there was a way to escape, he would have done it by now. He does say that if Augustus manages to find a crack, then to let him know, because he'll be right behind. It makes a motion of pushing a wheelchair, which, again, I found a little bit funnier than I probably really should have done. Leo is in the cafeteria giving a welcome speech to some of the new guards about to start work at Oz. Welcome to Oswald Maximum Security Penitentiary. We are, of course, pleased that the state budget increases line item for more correctional officers. Your presence here will help alleviate stress between the COs and the inmates 
as well as increase safety for all. Now, I myself stood where you're standing some 30 years ago. The warden back then gave us a piece of advice I'd like to pass on to you. Be aware and beware. My own little addendum is be fair. Again, welcome. So back in M-City, El Cid is playing cards with Chico and he notices one of the new guards, who he recognises as being a member of the Los Diablos gang. Chico mentions about that gang having been wiped out, but there is the Diablos motorcycle gang still in existence today, formed by Jack Baltus in Huntsville, Alabama in 1961. He says that Rivera, the new guard, was always a pussy, as Chico says, speaking of pussies, when Miguel makes his way over. El Cid asks, what do you want, Michael? still implying that Miguel is too white for the group, and Miguel asks for a private chat. El Cid deals Chico out of the card game and Miguel takes a seat. He starts to tell El Cid about his grandfather and his father being in Oz, but El Cid tells him that he knows about that already and looks unimpressed. Miguel says that he has no issue with El Cid coming in and taking over the gang, but since his arrival Miguel feels that he's been a low man and asks what it's going to take to get into El Cid's good graces. El Cid tells Miguel to change his skin because he's too white, Miguel tells him that he can't do anything about that, but El Cid means that he needs to change his skin colour in his heart and prods Miguel in the chest. Miguel says that he can prove that he isn't too white and asks El Cid to tell him what he wants Miguel to do to prove himself. El Cid asks Miguel if he sees that pato over there. Pato, meaning duck, is a Latino-American insult for a gay man. He tells Miguel a command in Spanish, but he says it very quickly so I was struggling to hear it and it doesn't come up on the DVD subtitles. Miguel asks him if he's serious, and El Cid seems to be very serious as he repeats the line. Miguel heads off to the ward to visit with his father for some advice, presumably reduced to a series of nods and headshakes. Been a while since we've seen Eduardo Alvarez too, this is the first time since Series 1, Episode 7. He tells his dad that El Cid is in Oz now, and to stay in the gang, he wants Miguel to remove a CEO's eyes. So thank you Miguel for clearing that up. Miguel explains that he is in a no-win situation, as either the guards are going to tear him apart, or El Cid will, and he asks his dad what he should do. Eduardo gives Miguel a kiss on each cheek, which was always going to be about as much as he was able to do, considering he has no tongue. Diane calls the count and the guards conduct their checks. Rivera is up on the top floor, and when he passes, Miguel tells him that they save at the eyes of the mirrors of the soul, a biblical proverb tracing back to Regiment of Life, but also believed to be able to trace back to the days of Cicero, who died in 43 BC. Rivera asks Miguel what the hell he's talking about, and Miguel just says that it was nice to see him, as Rivera looks creep out and walks away to continue his checks. So we've got Saeed who speaks in sound bites, Beecher recites nursery rhymes, and now Miguel is starting to quote biblical proverbs. Proper bunch of wordsmiths in Oz this series. Miguel heads into his pod and pulls out a scalpel from his trousers, which he has stolen from the hospital, and he hides it underneath a gap in the shelf near his sink. And that's it for Miguel's story this episode, as we get a flashback of Saeed questioning McManus about the Scott Ross shooting from the previous episode, before we cut back to McManus walking through M-City, where Diane approaches and asks him if he's got time to go over statistical reports. McManus tells her no, because apparently he's promised Kashin that he would sit in on one of his reading and writing classes, which Diane seems to buy, although I'd quite like to know what statistics she was looking to go over. Cut to the gym where McManus enters dribbling a basketball, and he sees Leo in the gym doing some bicep curls. Ernie Hudson's still looking absolutely jacked here, you would not mess with him. McManus asks how Leo's daughter's doing, and Leo explains that she's out of the hospital now, and on the road to recovery. 
Mamanus then asks about his brother Mark, who turned himself in a couple of episodes ago, and his trial is due to start in a couple of weeks. He then asks Leo if he fancies a little one-on-one basketball, but Leo tells him no. Which is a shame, as I'd have quite liked to have seen that. It would have been the Oz equivalent of when Rocky and Apollo Creed square off at the end of Rocky 3. McManus confides in Leo, saying that he can't tell the truth about the Scott Ross shooting, but that he can't carry the lie around anymore either, and Leo tells him to find a way to lose the lie. I like these scenes between Leo and McManus. Usually when they're around others, they're all business, but when you get them alone, they tend to let their guards down a little bit. And while they'll never be best mates, you can tell deep down that each man respects the other. Leo also doesn't seem to ask about the truth or the lie when McManus mentions it, implying that he knows what happened but is prepared to let it slide in order to move on. McManus heads into the changing room to talk with Diane, and after showing that Chivalry's not dead, tells Diane that he's going to be blunt. Sorry. Alright, Tim, it's not like you haven't seen me undressed. What's up? Well, you're always telling me that I get lost inside my own head, that I gotta be more blunt. So I'm going to be blunt. At Schillinger's hearing, I put my hand on the Bible, and I swore to God that I would tell the truth. And then I lied. I lied for you. And now, every time I see you, I'm reminded of my lie, of the vow to God that I broke, of my sin. And? I want you to transfer out of M-City to another unit. News travels fast about Diane's transfer to Unit B, and much like when the inmates were speculating about her and Beecher, They've all got a different take on the reason for her leaving. Augustus thinks she might have been selling cigarettes again. Busmalis reckons she's had a nervous breakdown. Rebido says it's because of McManus, so he's actually correct. While Ryan says that he's going to miss her tits. And the Latinos are wondering who's going to be in charge of M-City going forward. Elsid saying that he doesn't care so long as it isn't Rivera. Augustus narrates about people who wonder about whether or not their pets get into heaven, as we see Beecher watching the TV and there's another picture of Poet on the screen. Chico comes over and taps Beecher on the shoulder, and the two of them head to a secluded corner of M-City, where Chico pulls out a brown bag containing a bottle of similar to, but legally distinct from Jack Daniels' whiskey. Obviously, with the show operating on such a tight budget, they were not willing to show brand labels and logos, as you need to get legal clearance for things like that, with costs varying depending on the brand, unless a brand was willing to pay for the product placement. So Chico sells the bottle to Beecher, who starts to head back to his cell but Saeed approaches him asking him not to drink. Beecher tells Saeed that he likes to dabble in people's lives because he thinks he's better than everyone else because he's seen the face of God and seen the light. He then mentions about how Saeed likes to swing his dick around in an attempt to save the lowly mortals and mentions Augustus, Husseini Mershaw, Donald Groves and Jefferson Keane. Beecher conveniently seems to forget that he also tried to help Jefferson Keane, so he's ruined his own argument a little bit there. Beecher goes to get in Saeed's face, but Arif gets between them, seemingly looking like he's going to fight Beecher. But credit to Saeed, who tells Arif to back down and to allow Beecher to say his piece. Beecher asks Saeed who, other than himself, has he really helped since coming to Oz? And Saeed says that he helped Poet, and he even looks a little bit smug about it. Beecher tells Saeed that he just saw on the news that Poet is coming back to Oz because he killed someone, and recites Little Miss Took It before heading back into his pod to drink his bottle of Not Jack Daniels. We get Poet's crime flashback, where he's at a book signing for Unheard America, but there is someone in the crowd looking to take Poet out. 
Poet pulls out a gun and shoots them as Augustus, for the second time, gives us Poet's conviction details. Poet is the only character on the show to get two separate crime flashbacks, his first being shown back at the beginning of this series. McManus sees Poet coming back into Oz and he has that look of, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. Poet makes his way back up to his pod, the Brotherhood giving him a sarcastic clap as he passes, and Saeed looks absolutely heartbroken as Poet walks past him. Augustus narrates about how, unlike animals, humans put each other in cages, and even name-drops HBO to close out the episode. Prisoner number 98J448, Arnold Jackson, a.k.a. Poet, convicted July 20th, 98, murder in the second degree. Sentenced 26 years, up for parole in 19. separates you and me from the goldfish, the butterfly, the flat-billed platypus. Our minds, huh? Our souls, huh? The fact that we can get HBO. Well, maybe it's that humans are the only species to put other animals in cages. Put its own kind in cages. So there we go, Series 2, Episode 7, Animal Farm. Not a whole lot happening in this one. It's probably safe to say that this is somewhat of a filler episode, setting up the series finale next time round. The key things to take from this episode are Cyril and Antonio Napa coming to Oz, and Miguel receiving his ultimatum from El Cid. Poet also makes his return to the show, but other than that, minor continuances to plots rather than massive expansions. But it's by no means a bad episode, I did enjoy this one more than others in this series. It's also one of the shortest episodes of the series, the only one shorter than it is the series opener. I quite liked how they had Beecher bookend the episode with his drinking, and we also saw the seeds planted for a new plot thread involving Augustus trying to escape, as well as Ryan and Schillinger potentially squaring off somewhere down the line. I've gotta say though, I wasn't massively keen on Adebisi's vision that he had of his African roots. I know they try and explain it away as being some form of voodoo, and while it, while it could maybe have worked better as a drug hallucination, I just wasn't keen on that little segment at all. Having said that, it is good that Adebisi is getting some character development beyond just being a nasty bastard. Much like last time, no deaths to report once again, but we do have a couple of characters leaving the show. First off is Eduardo Alvarez, played by Jose Ramon Rosario. Co-stars Jose continued to work as a bit-part TV actor, including appearances in Law & Order, Third Watch, Deadline, and Washington Heights, as well as appearing in brief roles on film including Mystic River, The Day After Tomorrow, and Ghost Town, as well as doing voiceover work on Grand Theft Auto IV, The Lost and the Damned. In more recent years, he's appeared in The Wolf of Wall Street on film, 
and on TV in Chicago PD, as well as having a recurring role as Harris the Bailiff in The Good Wife on CBS. His most recent credits include appearances in Bull on CBS, the TV movie Christmas on Honeysuckle Lane, and in 2019 appeared in the TV movie Blanco, playing the part of Dr. Alvarez. And I hope there is some Oz fanfiction out there with Eduardo working his way from orderly to Doctor. Also making his final appearance as prison detective come mafia henchman Lenny Barano is Skip Sudaf. Throughout the rest of 1998, Sudaf appeared in a TV movie adaptation of William Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, playing the part of Fabian, as well as appearances in the movies Ronan, where he did his own driving stunts, and Bury the Evidence, as well as on TV in episodes of Mad About You and Trinity, both airing on NBC. Alongside his acting, Suda founded the acoustic rock band Minus Ted, with whom he released two albums, Hope and Damage Revisited and Really Really. You can find MP3s of the band over at their website, MinusTed.com, and I'll play a snippet at the end of this episode. From 1999 to 2005, Sudaf appeared across all six seasons of NBC's Third Watch, playing the part of John Sullivan, and later appeared in episodes of HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm, as well as NYC 22, Criminal Minds, and 10 episodes of The Good Wife, all of which aired on CBS. His most recent credits include appearances in Showtime's Escape from Danny Mora, a recurring role on Madam Secretary, and his latest role is in the recently completed Lazy Susan, set to air in the US in October. Still living in the New York area, Sudaf also performs as part of the sketch comedy ensemble Rumble in the Red Room. As I mentioned at the start of the show, this episode was the only writing credit for Debbie Sargent, and her only other writing credits came for two episodes of CBS's Now and Again, which ran for 22 episodes from September 1999 to May 5th, 2000. Mary Harron followed up her director's spot on Oz in 2000 with American Psycho, the film adaptation of Brett Easton Ellis' novel, and as I've mentioned before on the podcast, one of my absolute favourite films. Throughout the early 2000s, Mary directed a number of episodes for TV, such as The L Word on Showtime, as well as Six Feet Under and Big Love for HBO. In 2005, she directed the movie The Notorious Betty Page, and in 2011 directed The Moth Diaries, both of which featured female leads and led to the press labelling her a feminist filmmaker. However, Mary Harron has dismissed that title on a number of occasions. In 2017, Mary directed all six episodes of the miniseries Alias Grace, originally shown on CBC in Canada and on Netflix worldwide. The show received critical acclaim and won two Canadian Screen Awards, including Best Miniseries and Best Direction in the Drama Programme or Limited Series category. In 2018, Mary was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Stockholm Film Festival in Sweden, and in 2019 released her latest film, Charlie Says. The latest project, the film Dalyland, is in pre-production at the time of recording and is set to star Ezra Miller, Sir Ben Kingsley and Tim Roth. While I wasn't overly keen on his voodoo visions, I am awarding the episode MVP to Simon Adebisi. If there was anyone in Oz that you would expect to take advantage of a wad of cash lying around, you would expect it to be him. But he, as well as some other inmates, showed he is human after all. I also felt a little bit sorry for him with how he was so brutally rejected by Shirley Bellinger when he was trying to get his cocks up. So for those reasons, Simon Adebisi wins the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can head on over to iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castro Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcast from. 
The entire Series 1 is there, as well as what we've covered in Series 2 so far, and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes. Help the show out by giving it a 5-star review wherever you can, it helps the show gain exposure and appear on the charts to help the show grow, and if you want to get in touch with the show with any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can do so by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow the show on social media at both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we will be looking at the Series 2 finale, Escape from Oz, where we will find out who will be taking over from Diane as the head guard in M-City, Rebido and Boost Malis run into problems with the tunnel while Augustus continues to try and figure out his own escape plan, and Beecher's world is turned upside down when Keller is released from the hole. All of this and more on Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review podcast. Catch you later, everyone. This song is uh, for our youngest fan. She doesn't even know that she's a fan yet. Her name is Maeve Elsbeth Irby Kinney, and she's the daughter of a couple of friends of ours. She's 15 months old. She's sick tonight. And uh, so this especially goes out to her tonight, that uh, she feel better tomorrow. Uh, It's simply called Maeve. Music of your 